Welcome to the Meet Your Maker podcast, where we're going cover to cover in order to discover the glory, grace, and gift of knowing Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Genesis chapter 11, uh, I'm not going to waste any time, I'm going to jump right into this. Genesis chapter 11, I, I want to read to you the verse that really just like, it's one of those things. A couple weeks ago I said the Bible often surprises me. Right, like it catches me off guard. Sometimes it really, like I just prayed, it blows my mind. This was one of those verses that I read this week, uh, or actually last week. I'm a week ahead of you guys. Uh, that's for my benefit, uh, but nonetheless, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. I read that verse, and I'll tell you what I, my first thought was. Well, God, that's kind of mean. <laughs> like, I mean, that's just kind of mean. Like, let's go down. I'm going to confuse everybody's language. Why? So they can't understand each other. Why is God doing that? We'll talk about it here in a minute. But before I, I get into Genesis 11, we really got to backtrack a little bit. And so if you've been reading along, I don't remember if you read Genesis 10 in your F260. Uh, but nonetheless, it's really important. And so if, if they skipped it, shame on Gallaty. They should have put it in there. It's a crucial piece of information. Uh, and I, I'll say this. You probably have never thought about genealogies or, or never have given much thought to the genealogies of the Bible. Those long list of names that you come across. And, and I get it, right? Like uh, especially the ones that are recorded in the book of Genesis because the names are pretty much unanimously uh, impossible to enunciate. Uh, like, man, you can really get tongue-tied. Like, like, is this a repeat of Babel when I'm reading through the genealogies? This is hard. I, I can't get this out. It's hard to pronounce. They seem totally foreign to our minds because they're names of people about 4,000 years ago living on the other side of the world. It's not American names. It's not like John begat Joe and Joe begat Tim. It's like Uzgma, you know, and so forth and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to pronounce, hard to, to really get. And we may really ponder, if you're just being totally honest, you probably have sometimes pondered, are these parts of the Bible as inspired as the historical narratives that just like move my heart to glory? And so here's what I'm going to tell you. Absolutely. Even the genealogies, those long list of names that are hard to pronounce and seem so foreign to you, even those parts of the Bible were breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God and have supreme value for your walk with the Lord. It really functions somewhat like a scene, if you want to think of it that way, because it ties together large pieces of history and puts it in a coherent form that we can understand as the Bible reveals God to us. And so... Genesis chapter 10 literally is like a golden seam that ties together the closing narratives, the closing stories of Noah and the flood and the building of the ark and his salvation there and, and even kind of that weird like sketchy scene in the vineyard afterwards. It kind of ties that story together with this really weird kind of sounding story at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So Genesis 10, that, that chapter in between that I'm pretty sure your F260 skipped over, it's like a scene tying those two narratives together for us. Because here in Genesis 10, we get the genealogy or the names, right? The sons, the descendants of, the recording of the generations of the sons of Noah, 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's probably the three easiest ones uh, in the entire genealogy to pronounce. But it's an important list of names here because it reveals to us how the ancient family emerged into the eventual nations of the earth. If you read through Genesis chapter 10, you see something about the father of the Egyptians and the father of the Amorites and, and all this stuff, like some big names, right? Like the nations are being formed out of this little ancient family that God saved in the flood. And then here comes the nations of the earth. Now, our topic tonight, obviously, is not a comprehensive review of world history. Uh, I don't have time for that, and you probably don't have the stomach for that. Uh, so we're not going to do that. What I'm going to do instead is to do the most important thing. It's seek to show you the glory of God that is in this text talking about a divine great scattering of people. Like how do I read Genesis chapter 11, story of Babel, and see God glorified in that? That's the big question and that's our aim here tonight. And so in order to do that, I'm going to point out a very specific part of that genealogy in chapter 10. Let me read this to you. So Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. This helps us to understand Genesis 11. So don't, don't lose me. That's why we're in Genesis 10. So that you can see clearly through the window what we're looking at when we get to Genesis 11. So Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read it for you because these names might be hard to enunciate. Cush fathered Nimrod. What a name. Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. Let's meet this guy named... Nimrod. Almost thought about naming Shep Nimrod. I'm joking. Who would have done that too? Um, let's meet Nimrod, the first mighty man who lived on the earth. Apparently a superb hunter. Apparently he was so good at hunting, and he was such a mighty man, that he kind of had like a slogan, like he was like Spider-Man, or I don't, I don't watch Marvel Universe. I don't get that. But, I'm, you know, I don't know if it's like maybe they have catchphrases or something. But he kind of has like this hero catchphrase for him. And it's, kinda, it's like a mouthful, really. I would have wanted one that was shorter if it was me. But, you know, Nimrod. And so Nimrod, he's such a great hunter. He's so mighty before all the people that he has this catchphrase. It's kind of attached to his name. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Maybe it's kind of cool. I don't know. Nimrod, in addition to these traits, was also a great politician and a city builder. In fact, Moses, the author of Genesis, explicitly tells us that Nimrod founded the Babylonian Empire, which actually dominated most of the ancient world. It was located, conveniently, on the plain of Shinar. One additional observation that is necessary, and you may not have caught this one, right? So what we've got, Nimrod... Does all these things, mighty hunter, mighty man. Everybody sees Nimrod coming to town like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He's building cities left and right. He's a good politician. That's how he does that. And he's a founder of the Babylonian Empire on the plain of Shinar. But Nimrod's name, I was kind of making fun of it, but his name is really important for the narrative we're looking at. You know what it means in the Hebrew language, literally? 
we shall rebel. That's what Nimrod's name means. We shall rebel. A pretty good summary of what we get when we open up Genesis chapter 11. Widespread rebellion. So let's piece a few things together. I'm trying to help you see the context here, right? Following the devastating flood, Noah and his family resumed the cultural mandate of repopulating the earth. Why? Because everybody but Noah and his family was killed in the flood. So we're going to repopulate the earth as God told us to do. God tells them to do it again in Genesis chapter 9. Among those descendants from Noah, uh, among the descendants of Ham, through whose line Canaan was cursed by Noah, but through the line of Ham is born a mighty man and a hunter and a builder named Nimrod, a.k.a. we shall rebel. Nimrod and his people begin migrating, moving east, and settle on a flat piece of land called Shinar, which is the ancient name for what is later known, as you already know, Babylon and Chaldea, just another name for Babylon. Here on this plain of Shinar, future state of Babylon, enemy of Israel, enemy of God, right here on this plain, Nimrod apparently taps into some type of intellect that's available because everyone's speaking the same language. Like, ever, like I was just telling Jathan, here's y'all's Noah's Ark replica. I combined everybody's together from Sunday, and I thought, I don't know how y'all pulled that off, but it actually, that, that looks like a really good Ark. I, I was impressed, you know. I just took everybody's, hey, great, like, you get a lot of people thinking together, even when they don't realize it, they do something pretty cool. I think that's what happens here. Everybody's speaking the same language. Everybody's able to come together and put their minds together. And so they come up through Nimrod's leadership, apparently, some type of new innovative technology to make a massive amount of bricks. Lots and lots of bricks. And with this new technology, Nimrod decides to live up to his name and orchestrates a massive rebellion against God which is totally symbolized by the building of a massive tower made of bricks. So here's what I'm suggesting. That's the setting. When we open Genesis 11, the reason I go through that is kind of confusing if you're not piecing these things together. And so when we open up Genesis 11 and read the first four verses like I'm fixing to do, that's what's going on, what I just told you. That's the setting of this story. And so let's read it. Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. We shouldn't think lightly of this tower building activity. You may read that and think, what's the big deal with that? Build a tower? People build towers every day in America. What's the big deal with building a tower? Why's God going to twist their tongues and make them go to the far ends of the earth? Building a tower? We shouldn't think lightly of it because there's much more here than just some new technological innovation. Uh, through the intellect of man. As I said, it characterized the rebellion of Nimrod and his friends, which is expressed vividly in the entire hope that they had for building this tower. There's a reason for it. 
There's something they're hoping comes from the building of this tower that reaches into the heavens. But what was the hope of this tower? Let's look at how Moses describes it for us. Back at our text, he gives us the motivation of these Babylonian predecessors in verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that's tops in the heavens. Here's the motivation. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I'm going to suggest that Nimrod and company had a distinct two-fold purpose here in building the Tower of Babel. Reject God and resist God. Let's look at those two individually and see if we can make sense of it. Reject God. I think that is ultimately what is on the minds of these tower builders at Babel. I think that because clearly they say their motivation is this. Let us make a name for ourselves. But what's that mean? And and why does that give me a right to say they're rejecting God? Why does them go and let us make a name for ourselves? Why does in my mind that translate to Babylonians reject God? Well, when these tower builders chant, let us make a name for ourselves, I think what they are actually saying is let us do something worthy of an applause. Let us do something that will cause people, when they come to the plain of Shinar, they will say, wow. These people are brilliant. Look at what they've done. Look at this architecture. These people are great. Let us do something that makes us look great and grand and glorious. That's the entire point behind making a name for yourself. To get an applause from someone. This is the language that they're using here. To have people applaud you. That's what they want. Ultimately, these people who are building this tower, led by Nimrod, the mighty man, who has that widely known slogan, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod and company have one purpose here. They want to do something that gets them a standing ovation from the world. Everybody applaud and clap their hands for Nimrod and his friends. Look what they've done. However, the hope here at the Tower of Babel comes up short. And here's why. Human praise will never satisfy your heart. It's just not going to happen. You're not wired for that. You track it? And you may not think that, but I'm telling you, just like I prayed a moment ago, one of the reasons I love preaching is because I know what your greatest desire is, even if you don't. It's not because I'm some like wild prophet. I've studied the Word and I know your greatest desire is to know God. You are not wired to get all kinds of praise from other people. You are created for a distinct purpose. And that was not to get praise, but to give praise to God. This is the reason. So simple. You ever got a standing ovation and you you feel like, I wish there was a few more people here. I I wish the applause might have been a little bit louder. You could get a standing ovation from the entire world. The crowds could chant your name. They could applaud you as you walked. They could have celebrated and sung to you. And you still would have been wanting You still would be thirsty. You still would not be satisfied. 
because you're not wired to give praise, but to give praise to God who deserves our praise. That is to say that Babel's hope of making a name for yourself will never satisfy your heart because it's not the greatest desire of your heart. You were created to praise the one true God by applauding and rejoicing and celebrating over him and his works, not your own. The tower builders at Babel have rejected their created purpose and sought to make their own purpose, or simply put, they have rejected the glory of God with the hope of seeking their own glory by rejecting God's. Here's where I read this text and I, I think it relates with us, right? I don't know where you're at in this, but if your primary motivation in life is to do things to get a roar from the crowd. If your primary motivation for whatever activity you partake in is to get people to applaud you, and man, that's so good. Whether that's sports or academics or whether that's singing a song on stage and you just want to do it for these people to applaud you. Man, you just did such a good job. If that's your motivation, you're on the same path as these predecessors living here in the Tower of Babel. You're rejecting God's glory, and you're saying, I want my glory, and say, let me make my name. Don't, don't worry about your name. Let me make my name. The second thing they do is they resist God. This is the second motivation here listed. So the first one is let us make a name for ourselves. I said that translates into we're rejecting God. He's not good. We don't want him. We want it our way. That's number one. Number two is they resist God. And Moses tells us this explicitly, frames it this way, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Not only have they rejected God's glorious name to attempt making their own name, but they've also resisted God's glorious goal. Twice in the account of Genesis, once in chapter 1 and again in chapter 9, we are told that God blessed humanity by telling them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, bringing order to every creature as they acted like little royal mirrors reflecting God's glory into the world. He gave this mandate to Adam and Eve in the garden and again to Noah and his family when the flood subsided at the beginning of chapter 9. And yet here at Babel we see the people building a city instead of filling the earth as God had commanded them to. Working to make much of mankind instead of looking to glorify the Creator. They are resisting God rather than obeying Him. They are living up to the name of their founder, Nimrod. We shall rebel instead of bearing the name of Almighty God. That's what I think is the twofold purpose here at Babel. Reject God, resist God. Of course, those two concepts are so closely related, I really only use those alternative terms just for the sake of us getting some clarity there with that. And so despite us talking about these two purposes, let me bring them together and say that there's really just one hope of Babel. This entire idea of rejecting God and resisting God, that's our motivation, but there's really just one hope for the builders of Babel. It's the hope that being their own God would satisfy them. It's the hope that being your own God will satisfy you. That's the same kind of hope expressed in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, verse 5. Being like God, knowing good and evil is what the serpent tells Eve. That Adam and Eve were tempted to pursue didn't satisfy them, it only shames them. It's the same hope of the murderous Cain, who instead of doing well and being accepted, decides for his own self that murdering his brother 
is the better route to take. Funny thing, ain't it? We don't want to do it God's way. Fill the earth and multiply it. How about we build a tower and stay right here? Well, you're not making much of the name of God. It's okay. We want to make our own name. We don't want God's name. We want our own name. This is what's happening at Babel. Instead of finding glory in the name of God, they've sought to make a name for themselves. Instead of doing life God's way, they have decided that they have a better way to do life. That is the hope of Babel. The hope of being your own God. And so, here's where this brings us. Right? Here's what we got to get about the hope of the Tower of Babel. If the hope of Babel is that you want to be your own God, the hope of Babel falls short of the glory we were made for. You're not made to make your own name, but to marvel at His name. You're not made to seek your own glory, but to seek, know, reflect, and enjoy Him. You're not made to live like rebels against God. You were made to obey and to enjoy fellowship with God. The hope of Babel comes up short because, simply put, it will never satisfy your heart. Never. Now, in light of all that, I think perhaps we can see the glory here of God in what he does at Babel. If that's what's going on at Babel, Nimrod, we shall rebel. We've migrated east. We've got the plain of Shinar. God's told us to Glorify his name by taking his name to the ends of the earth. But we're not going to do that because we're going to rebel. And we're going to build a tower. We're going to stay right here. We're going to make our own name, our own glory. Because we really want to be our own God. Because that will make us happy. That's what's going on at the Tower of Babel. And so here's the question. What will God do? What's God going to do about that? How's God going to handle this? What's God going to do about these rebels that are shaking their fist at him? How's God going to respond? That's a good Bible study question. When you, I hope when you're reading the F260, you're coming, I hope that the question you're trying to get to is, what's God doing in this passage? What's God doing here? That's a good question to ask. We've labored to see what the Babylonians were doing in Shinar. Now we need to see what God does here in this text. And the first thing he does is so belittling to them. <laughs> I love the way Moses says this. And the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city. So much for building a tower that invades the space of heaven. So much for building a tower that the nose of it sticks up into God's living room. So much for that. It's so little that God, who is all seen, has to come down in order to see it. It's a slap in the face to the builders of Babel. And a good point for us to realize in the things we're pursuing in our lives. Man, we do so many things that we think are great, grand, and glorious. We, we do so many things in this life that we're like, man, I bet that got an applause in heaven. I bet that rocked the crowds up there in the stars. But what we see here at Babel is that a lot of times the things that we're pursuing, it, all the time, really, any time that we pursue something for our own glory and we think that it's so great and wonderful and that God must be clapping, what this text reveals to us is that people in heaven can hardly see it. 
It's invisible to the residents of heaven. But we do things for our own name and think we've done something that gets the applause from God. What this text is teaching us is that he didn't even see it. It's not even on his radar. God has to come down to earth in order to see this massive edifice that they've built. Such a big tower. God has to come down in order to even see it. Now in verse 6, God begins to speak about this rebellious act, and then he declares what he's going to do about it. So let's read it again. Genesis 11, verses 6 through 8. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Two things really come forth in this passage we just read. The first is what the Lord says about humanity. And the second is what he says he's going to do about humanity, which he actually does do in verse 8. So let's, let's look at those two angles individually here. The first one, God says something fascinating about humanity in verse 6. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So the Lord makes three explicit observations here about what he's seen when he comes down the Bible. The first is that humanity is united. They're together. One big happy family. Humanity is united. They are one people. Second, this unity is made possible by a universal language. There's nobody wandering around at the meat market in Babylon, I wish I knew how to speak the language here. Everybody knows. They're all united. They got a universal language. The third thing is this unity made possible by a universal language will enable humanity to do much more than build the very large tower of Babel. So this is where Bible study gets interesting, or at least it ought to get interesting for you, because I think this is the part that is most likely confusing for us a lot reading this. We read what God says in verse 6, and we probably ask, what's the big deal with that? Like, why is God taking issue with that? Why does God come down and see the Tower of Babel and go, these people are united. They all speak the same language, and this is only the beginning of what they do. Not if I have anything to do about it. And he comes in and twists their tongue and pushes them to the far reaches of the earth. Why does God do that? What's the, what's the big deal? Unified? Have you seen what's been happening in our streets in America? Surely unity. That's all because of racial disunity. Surely unity can be a good thing. Why's God mad about that? Universal language? Some of you may have experienced this. Some of you probably haven't. But when you stand in the, in the airport at a foreign country and you don't even know enough words to find your way to the bathroom, man, it's frustrating. You go in universal language, sounds pretty good right in that moment. Yeah. I don't know why God's so mad about that. Unity, one language. What's the big deal? Why is God so upset about this? Those are legitimate questions. 
And I get the strangeness that we probably feel in reading that passage. We might even read it and think, God, that just sounds a little mean for you to do that. Because look at what he says in verse 7, what he's going to do. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And then he does it. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Is God acting mean? What you think? What's God told you in your Bible study time through this? Is God being mean to the people in Babel? No. I assure you, God is in no way being mean. God is doing in verses 7 through 8 what he does on every single page of the Bible. Every single page, God's doing the same thing. He's acting intentionally in a way to make you see his supreme worth, his awesome reputation. Everything God does is for God's glory. So every time God does something on the pages of Scripture, it's to make much of himself and for you to read it and go, God's wonderful. This is amazing what I've read. The best Bible study question you can ask is, why is God doing what he's doing? And the answer is always the same. He's doing it to glorify himself, to make much of himself. To show the supreme value of himself, his excellent reputation. However, if we're going to see the glory of God through the window at Babel, we need to readjust our viewpoint at least at the ending of verse 6. I'm with you that unity and universal language may not be such a terrible thing. But it's the last thing we read at verse 6 that I think probably prevents a lot of us from getting what was truly going on. The part I'm talking about, it reads this. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That's, a, that's amazing that God said that about humanity, to be quite honest. They're unified. They got one language. Now they can do anything they want to. Nothing will be able to stop them at all. Anything that they propose to do, Babel's just the start of it. This tower, it's just the beginning. So why does God do what he does? Because of that. Because this is only the beginning of what they will do. I'm going to make a clear interpretation about that sentence that I think is consistent with the entire teaching of Scripture. Man never proposes to do anything good. Nothing good comes from the proposals of man. Man is wretched, depraved, wicked, never doing anything good. It's clear teaching of Scripture all the way throughout. Consider for a moment what the world may have looked like if God had allowed the rebellious pride of Babel to go unchecked. What if God just said, build your towers? Build your cities. I'm glorious. I know about it. Just do your own thing. What if God had done it? Well, can you imagine if building the tower, if the total rebellious act against God shaking their fists at heaven is the only beginning of what they will do? 
Can you imagine if he had let Babel go unchecked for thousands of years? What it might have looked like? You think the world's tough on you now as a Christian. Imagine if there was one world government there and their entire goal was to exterminate God worshipers. That's what would have happened had Babel had went unchecked. Can you imagine the filth, the evil, the wickedness? You know, country folk are really never the nasty ones in world history. You realize that? Like, you may not be a history guru or, or lover of history. I am. I'm just telling you. When you read through history, you never read about the country folk. Man, they were real hard people. Gave us a real hard time in history. You just don't see that. But when you see about Rome, you talk about wicked? Oh, yeah. You're talking about Corinth? I could tell you some nasty nicknames that the Corinthians had for themselves that they were proud of. Talk about Ephesus. Talk about Greece, Athens. These were wicked places. And let's just be honest. If you look around America today, where's the most wicked places? The small countryside villages that no one ever hears about? Of course not. These bigger cities. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that smaller cities are holier than bigger cities. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is just a principal observation. Bigger cities equals worse morality. So can you imagine what would have happened at Babel if God would have said, everybody just, you just all populate right here, build this city as big, just have it all, just, just take up. Can you imagine how wicked this place would have been? You see these big cities in history, it's never in a positive light. The height of evil seems to grow higher in larger populated cities. But God didn't let it go unchecked, did he? We've done something about it. God came down, he saw Babel, he saw what they were doing, and God done something about it. He saw, he spoke, he scattered them all over the face of the earth. And to prevent them from migrating back to Shinar, like instead of just throwing them Go there, instead of just moving them, he does something that guarantees they stay apart from one another. Twist their tongues. Gives them different languages. Does something to their minds. Can you just imagine the scene in Babel? I'm like on the 25th floor of this massive structure. Me and my old buddy, Ukman, or whatever, you know, uh, hanging out on the scaffold. Chatting about yesterday's murder that happened two blocks up. And then all of a sudden, it's just like garbled mess coming out of his mouth. Like, is he coughing? You, know, you ever heard of, you know, What's he doing? What's happening? But, but here's the funny thing. He's looking at me just as crazy as I'm looking at him. Because all he's hearing from me is... Bleh, 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 bleh. It's amazing. With one sweeping act, God takes this little human pride project of Babel and brings a complete stop to it. Pushes them sovereignly. Pushes them to the far reaches of the earth. 
And they do exactly what God had told them to do to begin with. It's amazing how God acts in Scripture. It's amazing what God does on the pages of the Bible. Literally, God makes them babble. It's interesting, the Hebrew verb there where it says, let us go down and confuse their language, the Hebrew verb is balil. It means to mix, mingle, confuse. Literally, it's what God does. He makes them babble. He makes them balil. He makes them confused in their minds and they no longer can talk to one another. And then he says, now you will go to the far reaches of the earth. Now you will fill the earth. And it happens. Verse 8 tells us that God does exactly what he does. And I want you to hear this. He does it with this very specific purpose. So that, this is the end of verse 7, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, here's what comes as a result of this scattering to the far reaches of the earth. When God moves everyone away, peaches their tongues, whatever he does, however he does it, but they can no longer understand, they have to move all over the place of the earth. Here's what comes as a result. Cultures arise that are as diverse as the tongues that are being spoken. Dialects, even within these various language people groups, begin to form. Like, have you ever talked with someone from a different part of the United States? Like, Midwest people kill me. Like, I have such a hard time understanding them. New Orleans people, I have a really hard time getting what they're saying sometimes. Some of my professors from seminary, like, they'll post YouTube videos, and I like, you know, so like on YouTube, you can speed up the video, right? Y'all know that? I'm sure y'all do. You can, like, make it go faster, but I can't, I have to, like, turn it down, like, slow it down just so I can get what they're saying sometimes. Cultures arise, dialects within these cultures form. People are really getting broken up a lot here. Kingdoms eventually rise up and vie for dominance. People get scattered and world history begins unfolding in a brand new way. The rebellious unity ceases in a moment. But we've got to see this. Babel doesn't eradicate the problem of sin, though. Babel's scattering is not God's solution to human sin. But it does place restraints on it. It does stop the spread of this depravity a little bit. It does put a dampering on sin. Think about it this way. When you have an evil man like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or I forget his first name, but the Mussolini guy. When you have one of these guys rise up and try to fill the world with their evil agenda and take over everything. There's not the unity that there was at Babel or they would probably be successful. But because of what happened at Babel, there's diverse people groups now. There's different nations. There's competing kingdoms. And so when someone like that rises up, there's always another dog down the street that's going to hold a check on this person. It's the way the world works. It's the way God's designed it. It's God putting a sovereign seatbelt on sin. Putting some restraints on this. If Babel Tower of the ba- Tower of Babel is the only the beginning of what they will do, if this is just the start of it, God puts a seatbelt on it and makes it slow down so they cannot complete the things that they want to do. 
So that's what God does. The people of Babel, united by the universal language, show an act of defiance for all the world to see by rejecting and resisting God. God sees it. God speaks about it. God twists their tongue, forces them to scatter across the earth, puts a restraint on man so that he cannot understand each other's speech, while consequently preventing them from doing all that they would propose to do. And that is a great thing that we should all be thankful for today, that God confused the people's speech at Babel. Now, y'all don't know about that. I believe every page in the Bible is a window through which we look to see our great God. Tonight's no different. So here's my last question I'm asking. And, and thank goodness because I'm getting close on time here. Here's my last question that I'm asking tonight when I read this passage. How does scattering the people show God to be the supreme satisfaction of my heart? How does God doing what he does at Babel make him all glorious? If that's the aim of Scripture, what's he doing in Babel and how does it reveal that to me? Well, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is just shining through the window at Babel. You've heard me say this a couple times by now in this study. The Old Testament is just leaning on its tiptoes towards the coming of Christ. Just, just leaning towards the gospel in the New Testament. And that I don't get like with people like Andy Stanley when they're saying, like, we ought to unhitch from the Old Testament. That's stupid. I don't get that. That, that's the equivalent of me taking half of the windows out of my house and just putting drywall up everywhere. Oh, the glories I would miss because of that. So don't unhitch from the Old Testament, whatever that means. Press into it and feel the currents of it pull you and drag you to the place called Calvary. So here's my question. How does God cause uh, how does God causing them to babble and thus scattering them over the face of the whole earth show him to be all satisfying? Here's what I think, and I believe this is consistent with the whole of Scripture. God sovereignly makes them babble so that he can sovereignly scatter them. Now, God does this so that one day the peoples of the earth would no longer be united under the name of Nimrod, a.k.a. we shall rebel. But by redeeming grace of God would unite a people under the name of his son, Christ. I think I can say it this way. God sovereignly scatters the peoples so that one day he can regather a people under the name of Christ. God's doing what he does there so that one day Jesus is the one regathering people back to God. The difference is that instead of united in rebelling against God, we are united in our worship and service to God. You see, Babel is where God puts a seatbelt on our depraved nature. But at the cross, because of what Jesus has accomplished, we don't get a seatbelt. We get a new heart. We get changed. We're made different. We're not restrained. We're transformed. A new nature, a new mind, a new song in the heart for us to chant forever. For rebellious depravity is no longer our banner. But we sing because of the redeeming grace of God. And so God does what he does at Babel so that Jesus is shown to be all-satisfying, all-sufficient in everything you need. Where the hope of Babel comes up short, Jesus is shown to be supreme. There's so much more we could talk about here. God's delight over diversity, yes. God's Victory over human pride. Yes. Oh, I didn't get to talk with you about how Pentecost, the giving and pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, totally reverses what happened to Babel. 
There's so much here, but I could not evade the 1,000th time I've read through the story of the Tower of Babel. This time, I could not help but see the glory of God shining through the window at Babel, pointing directly to the face of Christ. And that's why we study the Bible. That's why you're doing what you're doing, to see what God is up to. What's God up to in this passage? Why does he do this to Abraham? Why does he do that to Abimelech? Why does, he, why does God still rescue Lot even though he's reluctant? We'll talk about it next week. Talk about a doozy of a topic. That'll blow your minds. We ain't going to start preaching again. I, keep reading your F260. Let me pray for us. Uh, time to go. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity. Lord, I, I, I can't help but think that, you know, every sermon guide... And I'm thankful for this. Every sermon, every time we get together, uh, it doesn't have to be some like soul-crushing, stepping all over your toes kind of thing. Uh, if these guys are going to be transformed, God, I, I'm, I'm wise enough to understand that it's more than likely not going to happen in one single moment for everybody. If these people are going to be transformed, if, I, if we're as a group, God, if we're going to be made more like you, it's going to happen over the consistent day-to-day -day study of your word, the week-to-week -week preaching of your word, taking their heads and pressing it into your word, pressing it up against the window to see your glory. You change us from one degree of glory to another. Not all at one time, God, but over a period of our lives. Lord, tonight, it's good Bible study, but you change us through it. You cause us to think about you in different ways. We're challenged to think about parts of you that we don't like to think about. It's good for us. Lord, I pray that you bless us as we go. I pray that you would just zone in on them, convict them, God. Bring them to the, to the desire and want to to open up your Bible in the morning and to read the next passage on their list, whatever it may be. Bring them back safely Sunday, God, and we'll continue to study your word together. We thank you and praise you for all things. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen.